Hi everyone, it's Dash and um, on the 24th to the 30th of April 2023 is MS Awareness Week and so we thought we'd do a little episode about MS and that I would share a little bit of my story and experience as someone who has been living with MS for quite a while now. So it's Fiona here and I've got the pleasure today of going through this journey with Dash. Dash, just tell me, how how did your diagnosis occur? What happened? Yeah, it was really interesting. And there's like very vivid memories that I have of particular moments leading up. So um, I remember we'd gone to see the Simpsons movie um, and I was sitting in the Simpsons movie with, it was a double date with another couple. And Scott and I were very, very newly married. Like it would have been, we got married in the January and this was August. I even remember what I was wearing because I was wearing um, Converse high top shoes and I remember sitting in the cinema and it was the scene in the Simpsons movie where the pig is doing footprints on the ceiling. Spider pig. Spider pig, yeah. And I was trying to wiggle my toes and it felt like there was like sand or it was really gritty um, in my shoe and I just kept thinking, oh, how do I have sand in my shoe? How do I have sand in my shoe? They're converse. I haven't been to the beach. Like this just didn't, like it was a weird sensation. And I just remember at the time this overlay of this pig footprints on the ceiling and also thinking about my feet being like, oh, something doesn't feel quite right. Anyway, I didn't think too much of it thinking this is just a weird symptom that would go away. And it must have been a Friday night. And then progressively over the weekend, this sensation just started to spread. So it started to spread from my toes up my legs and then it was in both legs. And it... Can I guess, what, what was that sensation? Was it like sandy up your legs? It, yeah, or? it was just like um, altered sensation. So okay. f- it initially started to feel like sandy or gritty, yeah. but then it started to feel like pins and needles. Okay. And so it started to feel a little bit like... When you've fallen asleep on your arm and you've kind of lost blood circulation, Mm -hmm. but it was a constant. And so, um, but the thing is then that sensation kept moving. So it kept moving up my legs and it got to probably my waist and it was Monday morning and I was like, this is weird. Could you still walk at that stage? I could still walk. Yeah. And if you looked at me, you couldn't tell anything was happening. Like I could walk fine. My body didn't look any different, even though it felt so different. And that I think was a cognitive dissonance for me because I was like, what? Like my body just feels so weird. And you can't tell that from looking at it. And I remember like examining my legs in the mirror and just being like, no, they look normal. But poking it and being like, but they really don't feel normal. And so I went to um, work and at the time I was working um, at Melbourne University and I was working, you know, with doctors and um, they were like, "Mm, this is a bit abnormal. So it was right next to Royal Melbourne Hospital, um, well, a major hospital in Melbourne. And so I just went across the road um, to the emergency department to get myself checked because I was like, now I've had these symptoms for like three days. Yeah. And they're weird. They're weird symptoms. I was 23. So weird symptoms, 23. And I'm starting to think, is this a tumour? Like, you know. okay. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so obviously got triaged pretty low because I didn't look unwell. And you went in pain? There was no pain? I wasn't no pain. No. Just this weird sensation. Just this weird sensation, sensation. yeah. And... 
Um, got triaged, spent ages in the ED and then they did some blood tests and they're like, nah, there's nothing wrong with you. Your white blood cell count is a little bit elevated. You might be stressed. Okay. And so they sent me, so I went back to work. So stress for this yeah. condition. Okay. So it could be brought on by stress. And did you think, yeah, I've worked pretty hard or did you think, or did you think, no, that doesn't sound right? Well, I was just like, oh my gosh, if I'm that stressed that my body could then do this because yeah. I, like I was I was pretty junior in my job like it's kind of like my first real full-time job and I, I did I wasn't responsible for much like it was pretty low-key kind of research assistant work so it wasn't that stressful and yeah there wasn't anything that was explaining it and you know it was kind of cold weather so part of me was like am I cold is this like some weird cold situation yeah. Um, but I had no other symptoms except this sensation. And so then um, my boss, who's a GP, was also like, well, maybe you are stressed, you know, try going home and sitting in a bathtub and blowing in and out of a paper bag to kind of regulate your breathing. I was like, <laughs> to okay. try stress. And I literally did that. I yeah. sat and tried that and I was like, this is ridiculous. This is doing nothing. But the, the sensation got progressively stronger, progressively stronger. And so... I was like, okay, well, ED didn't take me seriously. So I, I made an appointment to see a GP, saw the GP a couple of days later. And she was like, mm, this is definitely neurological. And so I'm going to book you in to see a neurologist or send you a referral. But the earliest that I could get to see the neurologist would have been, I think, three or four weeks from that date. So just going to that you you're now probably at week 1 already yeah. then it's another maybe 4 weeks on yeah. top of that so 5 weeks yeah is ms a condition where you need to be seen pretty immediately like um, that's a long time it's to a wait. long time you're not going to die okay. i don't think you're going yeah. you're not well you're not going to die but your symptoms can then become quite disabling yeah. and it's better to get them treated, particularly as if you're possible. in an acute relapse. It's better to get that treated so that they resolve quicker and yeah. you're not going to have ongoing issues okay. with that symptom. Yeah. And so... Um, so did you wait the three and four weeks? Well, the symptoms then got so strong. Like I got to the point, then it got up to my torso, right? So wow. And so now... The sensation was so strong that it was it had gone past pins and needles to feeling like my legs were totally numb. And I felt like I could actually cut my leg off and not feel it. Like I couldn't feel sensation very well at all. That's pretty serious. I know. So I, that then I was like, okay, I can't wait. Yeah. Three weeks. And so it was probably... Week two, I went back to the um, emergency department at the hospital. Okay. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this. The ED doctor who saw me um, was a very good looking man. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Literally looked like he was off ER, like a, a young George Clooney. Yeah. And because this whole time I'd been told, oh, you must be stressed, you know, you're recently married, you've got this research job, you must be stressed, rah, rah, rah. I had started to build this narrative in my head that I'd gone crazy. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so anyway, this doctor's like checking my reflexes and obviously nothing's working. Yeah. And... 
I then say to him, I feel like I've gone crazy. I said, this sensation is so strong. I said, I feel like I can cut my leg off. And he just looked at me and he said, I believe you. And I just burst into tears. And he called um, the MS registrar, who is now a consultant and I know her like in a professional sense. And she was just beautiful. And I just remember she came and saw me. And at this point, it's probably like eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And she came to see me and (laughs) she said, okay, I want you to stand with your feet together and close your eyes. Yeah. And as immediately I tried to do that, I fell over. Yeah. And then she said, I want you to start walking in a straight line as though you're on a tightrope. Yeah. And I put one foot, but I couldn't swing the next, my second foot around. And she was like, okay, yep, you're being admitted right now. And okay. um, so I got admitted into the hospital. Okay. But they didn't, she said, um, she, they she didn't tell me what I had. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, because they didn't know yet. Yeah. Yeah, but they had suspicions. She said, you've got definitely something going on neurologically. We're going to admit you so we can do more tests. Is there any family history of MS? No. And so, um, my, but again, tricky, right? So my mum tells about a lot of neurological symptoms that have happened on her side of the family, but they've never been diagnosed as MS. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was really interesting because the next day, you know, doctors do their ward rounds very early in the morning and Scott spent the night with me because I was like petrified. Like I was like, oh my God, I'm in the hospital. No one knows what's going on. And then by that point I actually convinced myself I had a brain tumor. Yeah. And the doctors came in and they'd ordered an MRI and all of that stuff. And actually I got an MRI at 3am in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) just insane and I was so um because I'd been getting blood tests over this period for people to try and figure out like my arms were so bruised and bloodied and um they couldn't find a vein and they put me in the MRI and then told me oh we've they didn't tell me anything then they tried to shove a cannula in like they pulled me out and tried to shove a cannula in without telling me and I've they didn't tell me that was and you have to stay really still right in an MRI and I totally freaked out. And then the um, um, MRI person was like yelling at me, and I was like, "I'm sorry. Look at look at the state of my arms. Like yeah. you've like really hurt my arm. If yeah. you'd at least said, I'm so sorry, I've got to put a cannula in, yeah. I would have been ready for it. Yeah. But anyway, so then um, this senior consultant and um, the registrar from last night come in, and they say, "You have transverse myelitis." What's that? So that is the explanation for the symptoms that I'd been having, right? Okay. So when I got diagnosed, which was in 2007, that first symptom happened in 2007, you needed to have two episodes episodes separated by time to get a diagnosis of MS. Okay. So even though my MRI showed lesions on my brain... So it shows lesions on your brain. It showed multiple lesions on my brain. Okay. They couldn't say to me... I had multiple sclerosis. So they said to me, you've got transverse myelitis. But both Scott and I, like I'm biomedically trained, he's trained, he's a neuroscientist, right? So he was doing his honours at the time and he just turned to them and he said, is this MS? Yeah. Straight away. He knew. He knew and um, they just said, um, we can't make that diagnosis yet. Okay. Is When they say they can't make that diagnosis, is that like... 
a medical acceptance sort of thing. Like everyone goes, you've got to have two cases, you've got to have two cases. I think that Even was... Even though the, they know what it is. Yeah, they totally knew. Yeah. And, you know, um, when I look back and I cheekily had looked into my medical files, um, it was recorded right from the start. This yeah. this um, patient has MS, but they couldn't protocol-wise. That was the protocol back then. Because they, because some people could go for years, like literally years, without having a second episode, and so I think they thought, all right, let's just see. And the protocol was, you get treated with steroids. So I was in hospital for about five days, I think. I had three days of steroids, and then they were just monitoring because I couldn't, by that point, walk properly at all. Monitoring me, making sure I was okay. And to um, then start me, oh, no, they didn't start me on treatment or anything then. So they said, okay, off you go, off you go home. And if anything odd happens, <laughs> come back. What's odd? You've already got odd. <laughs> yeah. So this is the weirdest thing with MS is um, it is a collection of symptoms that can range from really quite mild, like pins and needles, to losing sight, to losing the ability to walk, to having impacts on your speech, to having bowel and bladder issues. Like the symptom range is really broad. And so when they said, oh, you know, if something odd happens and they didn't want to tell you, and I totally understand that because then you'd probably manifest the oddness and be like, now this is like MS. And so that first episode was in August, September, right before my birthday. And then um, in January the following year, um, my, in my previous episode I shared about how um, a girl that I'd been mentoring um, took her life and, like, that was devastating. And I, like, was crying and crying and then I suddenly went, I can't see out of my right eye. And I was like, oh, does that classify as odd or is it because I'm crying? But it was like a dark shadow over my right eye. And so I just rocked up to the hospital again and was like, "Mm, I don't know, but I can't see out of my right eye. And so then from then on, I got a diagnosis of MS and had to start treatment. Between the first episode and the second episode, was there real terror for you? Well... Um, because we both had read about MS, we're like, and we'd learnt it, like we'd had lectures on MS, right? We knew it could be really, really bad. And so there was an element of kind of, oh, this could really come and bite us in the butt. Mm. But we didn't know when, and it was just this weird period of waiting. And so I think I was quite anxious during that time. But it wasn't something you could easily talk to people about. And so I just I was just waiting to see what was going to happen. I didn't know if it was going to be weeks, months, years. Because I'd heard of people who'd gone for like 10 years with nothing and then wow. they got their second one. Or their symptom just became fatigue, right? But so many of those things can just be life, can't yeah, they? Yeah, Exactly. But looking back, so now new research has shown that um, the Epstein-Barr virus is very strongly linked as a risk factor um, 
to getting MS. And I don't know if I've had the Epstein-Barr virus, but I remember in the year before getting that first episode of MS, where I'd been doing my honours year, Scott and I just started dating, like life was really full. I was exhausted. Like I was falling asleep all the time and like really unusual levels of exhaustion. And so part of me was like, oh, I wonder if that was the start of it actually and I just didn't recognise it. Yeah, just looking back and reflecting. Yeah. You're looking for that very start of it. Yeah. Wow. So... What does it mean for you nowadays? What's the change in your lifestyle and, and what's happened? Well, it was a very interesting um, situation. So I'm so fortunate, I would say, living in Australia because we do have access to um, really good specialists, really good MS research, but also really good MS drugs. So me getting diagnosed at this time of my life in this era um was the first round of um, having access to drugs, which we call disease-modifying drugs. And um, they actually do then stop progression but also modify your disease trajectory. So the first drug I was on, I used to have to inject myself every second day and you would get... And so that wasn't a disease-modifying drug and you would get flu-like symptoms... And you'd have to take Panadol and you'd feel terrible for the 24 hours of that injection day. Then you'd feel better and then you'd have to inject yourself again the next day, right? And as a young person who I didn't feel unwell, like my MS symptoms had for the most part resolved. I was then giving myself a treatment that was making me feel worse. I lasted three months on that drug and I just stopped taking it. Because that's every second day you feel like every And it was an intramuscular injection. And they really hurt. Yeah. And to inject it to yourself, and I was terrified of needles. I um, had malaria as a baby, and I think I had this needle phobia from that. Yeah. Um, and so I, w- I really struggled with that. And I remember just getting yelled at by this, like, dickhead of a doctor. Not my, my actual doctor, but a, a doctor registrar who was, like, yelling at me for being the non-compliant patient without necessarily unpacking the how and the why and all of that. And then my actual doctor came in and I think got him off the MS um, treatment teams because quite a few young women complained about how he was rude and mean. And then I've been on a series of MS drugs ever since. Some of them have involved coming into the hospital once a month to get an infusion, which takes a couple of hours. Um, I was on an oral medication for a little while, which was amazing, but I became incredibly neutropenic and so I had to get off that one. Um, I went on what I thought was going to be a miracle drug. Um, It was really, really toxic, like really toxic and they don't even give it to people anymore. Mm. And so you were meant to get it one year and then 12 months later you'd get another dose of it. And they don't know if that led to something like my type 1 diabetes because yeah. it does cause lots of different... And I had to get monitored um, monthly for four, um, for four years yeah. to check for um, adverse events. But, like, it's taken a lot of medication management. So I often have this narrative of I failed on five me- MS meds and I'm actually not on a real MS drug at the moment. I get IVIG infusions because I'm too immunocompromised for them. Like my immune system has been so suppressed, but IVIG also does help with MS, but it's just not considered a first line. And I'm just waiting to see if there's other drugs that come out. 
And um, that's why MS research is so, so important because we all respond differently to different drugs. And so what works for me may not work for another person and vice versa. And we all have different symptom profiles and we all have different, um, I guess, ways of managing it. And so having like this suite of drugs that can kind of be almost tailored and, and that you have an opportunity to play with. And yeah, the research is only getting better and better in terms of um, finding more therapeutic drug targets and stuff. It's very different to your diabetes medication. Yeah. Where, where most diabetics are very similar. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you're just saying about could that have caused your type 1 diabetes? Um, like what did that diagnosis mean on top of the MS? How's that complicated things for you? Well, it's really complicated um, because every time I have an MS relapse, and I've had a lot of them, um, I've been stable since 2018 now, which is amazing. It's the longest I've actually gone for without having what we call a relapse. So I have relapsing remitting MS. But there was one year where I had three, I had relapses every three months where I'd go into hospital and have to get a drug called methylprednisolone, which is a steroid. And as a type 1 diabetic, when you have steroids, it sends your blood sugar levels super high and it keeps them high for quite a long time. Like even when you're off that drug, it's mm. like you have a period of insulin resistance, which can be yeah. for really hard yeah. to manage. And so when you're feeling bad, terrible symptom-wise because you have an MS relapse and then you have to add on the awfulness that you feel when you have high blood sugar and just having to pump as much insulin in, like you really have to stay on top of it. But I have such an incredible care team. And so my, the first time um, after my um, di type 1 diabetes diagnosis, I got a really bad MS relapse. And I think it was because my body had been so stressed from yeah. the type 1. So I'd really only just come out of DKA, yeah. diabetes ketoacidosis. And I'd only been out of hospital for type 1 for about a month. And they were all like, oh, my God, we're going to send her sugars sky high yeah. again. They were really worried about that. But I, I literally couldn't walk. Like I was so like impaired with that relapse. But my endocrinologist was texting me every three hours to tell me what to do because I just did not trust anyone else to tell me how to manage the dosing because neurology aren't experts in endocrinology. Yeah. And so like when you become a complex patient like me, to have your specialist teams trust each other and communicate with each other is just extraordinary. Mm. And I've been very fortunate that that has happened. MS has become um, more in the media recently because a couple of very famous celebrities have now got MS. Yeah. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Look, I think... It has been good for raising awareness about MS because I don't think um, people sometimes realise that it is a very serious disease because it's considered an invisible disease, right? So a lot of people can be living with it and struggling with it. So I'll start with all the positives. It's raised awareness, you know, it, it is, it's very much kind of profiled the fact that it's serious, that it takes a lot of management. Um, I think, you know, it's been interesting seeing Christina Applegate talk about the impact the meds have had. Like I really struggled with that from a body image perspective because every time you take those meds, your your weight balloons, your body changes quite a lot. 
steroids make you extraordinarily hungry. Like we're not talking steroids that might be in a puffer or in some of the oint. Like these are really high do- dose steroids, and they they make you a little bit manic. They make yeah. you a little you ha- you some some people have to have sleeping tablets to kind of deal with the mania that comes yeah. with that. Um, and it, they make you so hungry. And so you do gain weight. You get like that moon face yep. situation. And raising awareness of that. And even like with um, Selena Gomez, raising awareness of like the body changes that happen with chronic disease like lupus, yeah. I think is really helpful. But I think the flip side of it has been that it's almost been perceived as or talked about as life is over with some of them and kind of like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that could have happened to me and I can't, like, my life is over and, you know, um, F you, MS and all of that kind of stuff. And as someone who lives with MS, I'm like, that's also not helpful because we can, we do. So many of us live incredible lives and do incredible things and can work full time. And so to have that narrative out there where then people are like, oh, should you be doing that? Like, I feel like that's been like the unintended consequence is that it almost makes people think, oh, this is a a disease that puts you in a limiting um, situation. And so I kind of always think about, you know, um, in the West Wing, how the president had MS. I almost loved that, even though some of the symptoms he had, I was like, oh, I've never heard of an MS symptom like that. (laughs) But... The president had MS and he could be the president of the US, right? Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. I loved that narrative. Um, and so I kind of, it's like, yes, I have a disease and I can still live a incredible life and do incredible things. I just have to adapt and do things sometimes a little bit differently to others. You said something that just um, piqued my interest just then about people saying, oh, should you be doing that or is that okay for you because you know, you know, it's been a type one. If you have a chocolate or a piece of cake, people are like, should you be eating that? You know, um, what's that been like? Like people inquiring about your condition or making judgment on it or questioning. What's that been like for you? It's been really hard. And I think, you know, I've got to be kind to myself. Like when I was diagnosed, I was in my early twenties. I was young, Mm. like super young. I don't have the the maturity or the toolkit that I have now to kind of deal with some of those tricky and sometimes intrusive conversations that people would ask me. And so I remember um, I was in hospital. I'd just been diagnosed. I had like drugs getting pumped through my arm and a family member um, said, oh, I knew someone who had MS and they died, right? That was the first thing they said. Wow. And I was like, not not helpful um, comment. And then, um, you know, when I didn't want to tell anyone and for a long time I didn't tell a lot of people because the first couple of people I'd tell would say things like, oh, so you're going to be in a wheelchair and you're going to, you know, you're not going to be able to walk and you're, you know, and it's fair because that's what they knew of MS, but it's not a helpful thing in the moment to yeah. say to someone who's just been diagnosed. And I felt like... Who I knows ha- that? Who, who knows, knows that? information. Yeah, yeah, who knows that's a massive risk, massive, massive risk. And, you know, I, I appreciate that the, the 
treatment um, landscape has changed, and so I haven't ended up in a relapse uh, in a in a wheelchair. Sorry, considering I've had MS for sixteen, seventeen years, that wouldn't necessarily have been the case um, for generations beforehand. But, you know, they'd say, and I felt like I was constantly counselling people and consoling people as a way, as opposed to the other way around. So then I stopped telling people. I just was like, I can't deal with this. And I remember reading a really good quote, and I can't remember, like, the exact wordings, but it was kind of the sentiment of it from Brene Brown in one of her books. I think it was Rising Strong where she talks about how we have to deal with our own pain and hurt. Like, there doesn't need to be any unmet need from our end before we have before we share those stories with broader community you can share it with your tribe but I felt like there were a lot of people who had this morbid fascination of what do you have why do you have that how did you get that like what did you do wrong almost for that to happen and you know particularly in the church context I had people say um things like oh god's slowing you down because you're too busy really yeah like that's real judgment from like a good friend said that to me i think god is slowing you down because you're too busy okay and i was just like that is an awful thing to say to someone who's just been diagnosed yeah like i did i did this to myself did i but and I hadn't dealt with it myself to be able to say, hey, that's a really unkind thing to say. Whereas in I, can, I have that now. I can say that to people now and say, that's not a kind thing to say. How do you look after your mental health? Um, I think I've gotten better at it Reese, probably in my 30s. I've gotten So when I was in my 20s, I really didn't want MS to define me. So I almost pushed it too hard. Yeah. And so I didn't look after myself. I, I was running and I was yeah. trying to do the physical stuff really well, but I didn't probably look after my mental health very well and I didn't look after my rest very so well. So you mean like F-U-M-S? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe a little bit. Like I didn't want it to limit me and I, I was very anti the sick role. Like yeah. I didn't want people to put me in a box. Yeah. And so, I was, you know, I was working full time. I was doing my thesis part time. I was very active in the church. I was running 10Ks every weekend. You know, I was very social running youth group I was preaching at church like I was doing way too much I was mm. so exhausted going to the gym all the time whereas in now I prioritize rest a lot which yeah. is so important for my mental health and so I sleep a lot mm-hmm. I say I have to say no to a lot of things which yeah. really upsets me because I don't like it and I love being social but at the same time I have to be like there are going to be consequences, not just physically but mentally, because yep. when I'm tired, it's much easier to spiral emotionally as to symptoms and management and this is unfair. Whereas in when I'm well and I'm rested, you have better perspective. Like that's just comes with rest and looking after yourself. So I would say my mental health is a lot better now. Um I am also on a lot of, uh, it's it's kind of funny, like the drugs that you get on. Like I'm on so much medication at the moment, but I'm on a lot of muscle relaxants, which play the same role of an anti-anxiety tablet. Yeah. And I kind of am like, well, I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm feeling pretty chilled today. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty chilled. Like the levels of these drugs that I'm on, like there's no way I should feel any anxiety at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
What's the thing that MS has taken from you that you miss the most? I think being able to do physical stuff. Like I really miss not being able to run. I miss not being, you know, and, and like I have to rely on so many people to do things. Like I, I'm very fortunate to have an incredible tribe of people around me who will drive me places because I, I do struggle with driving long distances. I really shouldn't drive at all if I have any amount of alcohol, right? Like anything like that. And, but I'm sometimes hard, like I find it hard in crowds, navigating crowds, navigating space and just um, like I'm not at a space time where I'd use a walking assistance, but sometimes just having someone's arm nearby is really helpful for me. But, you know, like I see a physio every week. I was seeing an OT a lot. I see, I have so many medical appointments and my week is very, very packed. It's almost like with all of my medical conditions, it's almost like having a part-time job just to manage them. Yeah, so I lost that. I feel like I've lost some of that freedom but I feel like I've lost a lot of that physical ability and I used to um you know in the census they kind of ask you a question are you disabled or something like that and I for a long time I ticked no and then now I'm like no actually I I think I am and I am on the national disability scheme so it's just that you most people would look at me and think I'm not yeah and so you wouldn't know you wouldn't know but there are very some, there are times when you will really notice it. What do you think you gain from it, the diagnosis? Because I often think about when you get diagnosed with these really chronic conditions, sometimes it can be a light bulb moment for you as well. I think it, um, I think I've gained a lot from it. It helped me grow up pretty fast, that is for sure. I think I am a better researcher because of it. I know I'm a better researcher from it because I can bring a patient lens to any research I do in the health system. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it gives me a bit of more of a voice and people take, because I'm not a doctor, like I'm not, I'm not a clinician, but I can say, Hey, as a patient, I've been through that and that was not okay. Um, I've gained a lot from that. I feel like I have gained um, some just incredible, authentic people around me and you know, I just think, God, I'm so blessed. I married a neuroscientist. <laughs> I freaking married a neuroscientist before I got What's MS. What's the odds? What's the what odds? What is the odds? My neurologist works with my husband. Yeah. You know, like it's, I am so well cared for. And so if, I, sometimes I would say to people, if anyone was to have MS, I'd rather it be me than someone else because of the support I have and the people around me, it's just incredible. And I have very high health literacy. I, I just, I know how to kind of do the whole system thing. But I also think um, it has helped me put life in perspective. I think something, I'm a very optimistic person and I think this has helped me always just have a level of perception and perspective that I wouldn't have had potentially otherwise so I am thankful for it to be honest I am it sucks when I'm unwell um but it is also for the most part I am good I am really really good and I work full-time I work more than full-time I do a lot I do this podcast I write I just can do a lot and so 
one well, of the things I, I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> You're an extremely busy person. One of the things like I feel like encouraging people when they think of anyone who's living with any chronic health condition is it's very easy to put people in a box and to to put limits on them or, or think that there are things like, you know, we said with the type one, like, oh, should you be doing this or, you know, all of that. And I I get that from a lot of people and it comes from a meaningful place, like a, a well-meaning place of shouldn't you be looking after yourself? But um, I think an easier phrase is to put the word and. And so I have a chronic health condition and I have this and I do this and I'm this person. And so I am more than that. And to be able to recognise that's true of everyone. We all have ands that link different elements of our life together. And so, yes, I have MS and I have type 1, and I have endometriosis, and other health conditions, and I'm an academic, and I'm a wife, and I'm a miniature dash and owner, and I'm a podcaster, and I'm a friend, and I'm a sister, and I'm a daughter. Like, there are many ands that make my life rich. And I think to reduce someone to their health problem is not helpful. So whenever we're talking to people with health problems to be very conscious of the ands and to ask about the ands, not just about the health problem. Hi, Fiona here. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the XYZ Experiment podcast. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. If you enjoyed our show, tell all your friends and family and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at the XYZ Experiment for all the latest updates and news. Our original music was composed and performed by Luke Champion. 